God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom contained in it. And I pray that we would be wise people like Jesus says. Um, The wise man is the one who hears these words and does them. So I pray that we would be like that. We thank you for the stories of Jesus' life, the account of his teaching and his actions. And I pray that those things would inform the way that we choose to live. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Glad that you all are here this morning. I hope everybody's well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm better this morning than I was yesterday. So if I start to like lean weird while I'm teaching, it's it's only because I'm dizzy and <clears throat> nauseous, but not as bad as I was yesterday. Yesterday, if you'd like had me do like a sobriety, field sobriety test, I definitely would have failed. It would have been like weaving all over the place. So I'm doing okay. Um, all right, verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Interesting, it just stood out to me, all that he was doing, not necessarily all that he was teaching. Verse 9, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Hi, Debbie. Good morning. Verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Uh, We're in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Okay, so if you look back at chapter 2, verse 13, it's very similar to verse 7 of chapter 3. So verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 13 says, And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. The difference is that now... Uh, Jesus, the text explicitly states that the disciples are with him. So this is setting the stage for the next scene that's going to come up where Jesus is going to commission or like ordain his apostles. Um, So I think that's why the shift is there in kind of the language where the disciples get included in that. So the, the geography here, the sea is what? Yeah, the Sea of Galilee, right? That's the region that Jesus is in. Uh, If you have maps in the back of your Bible, it might help to kind of look at this um, because geographically, I'll I'll touch on this for just a moment. Um, Mark is giving sort of the totality of Israel here in the places that he references. So Galilee is a region in northern Israel. Judea and Jerusalem are in southern Israel. Idumea is a region even further south than that. Another word that we probably know it by is like the Negev, the south. Jordan is 
east of Israel. So the Jordan River is like the eastern boundary of the nation of Israel, technically, even though a couple of the tribes were established on the east side. Tyre is in the northwest of Israel, but sort of would represent like the westernmost region. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. And so Mark is showing us that people are coming to Judea or to Jesus from all over the place. I mean, if they're traveling, a great crowd, verse 7, a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. Like word of this man has spread all over the place. Um, I'm not good with like math calculations, so I didn't try to get like the square mileage, but you've got roughly 150 miles north-south and roughly 70 miles, 75 miles east-west. That's a huge region for word to have gotten out, especially considering there's no printing press, newspaper, TikTok, YouTube, etc. Okay. And I want you to flip real quick to Isaiah 43, because I think that Jesus is fulfilling a bit of prophecy here. Someone want to read Isaiah 43 verses 5 through 7 for us? Now, I do think ultimately Isaiah here is speaking about like the church, but this is proto-church. Like Jesus is sowing the seeds that will turn into the church. So I, I, I think that Mark probably has this idea in mind that people are coming from all these different directions. They are encountering Jesus. Many of them will go back home just with their healing and without their hearts and their minds transformed, but some of them uh, undoubtedly will become followers of Christ. Um, so I think this is the ushering in of this new covenant, new kingdom, new era. Um, it's obvious. The Isaiah passage is about uh, coming back from captivity. I think that Isaiah, I think like a lot of prophecy, Isaiah has like a twofold meaning. There's an immediate, this will be fulfilled in the near future, and then there's like an ultimate. Would you agree with no, that or I disagree? I agree with that, and I agree with the church. I just would never have seen that in the context of Galilee, Galilean kind of thing. Although, yeah. I, I figured that it, that's talking about like Gentiles from all over the world, not just. Yes, yeah. and, and, and I think when Jesus gives a great commission, right, go therefore, and, and he lists these different regions and ultimately the ends of the earth, like that is like the final kind of commission for that. But I think Mark is, I think Mark is saying like Jesus is inaugurating this movement that will climax with people from every place. Um, maybe that's reading too much into the text, but I, I think there's a reason why he's listing these different areas. Um, so I don't know, maybe that, again, maybe that is pressing too much, but um, 
maybe the maybe the ultimate point I'm trying to make is that the kingdom of God is not Israel. It's not confined to Israel, right? It's it's growing beyond those borders. Uh, it is a good thing that Jesus' disciples had some practice with boats because on more than one occasion Jesus escapes these crushing crowds with the experience that his disciples bring in their handling of boats Um, and people are pressing in on Jesus because his power is so great that to even touch him uh, can bring healing we don't know that that's the case with everyone who is coming to him in this scene but The crowds were great. They were pressing in on him. Uh, It says in verse 10. um, And and so people are eager to meet this man, be close to this man, to have their physical infirmities healed by him. Uh, I think maybe a principle to draw from this is like when God truly touches a life, he makes the bent things straight. And ultimately that is most significantly spiritual in nature. Um, We've talked about this as we've gone through Mark. Jesus is doing things that prove and show that he's the son of God, that he has power. And ultimately he's going to fulfill the bent spiritual state of man is going to be straightened. Um, But to show his authority to do such things, he brings healing to people. The demons recognize the divinity of Jesus. I think this is kind of a sad contrast because uh, I don't think that probably most of the people who came to Jesus in these massive crowds understood who he was in his fullness, but the demons did. Um, Many of the people were coming just for healing and physical well-being. And so ironically, I think the demons are wiser than these people uh, because they see Jesus for who he is. Maybe that was not the right way to say it. The demons are more perceptive than these people. Wiser is probably not the the right word. And uh, this probably reminds us of James 2.9 that talks about how even the the demons believe and shudder. Um, You know, there's a distinction between like knowledge of who Jesus is and trust that he is the one that you should follow. Does that make sense? There are lots of people today who I would call functional atheists who profess faith in Christ. And they're functional atheists because they have a cognitive, mental understanding of who Jesus is, but they don't walk in the way that he walks. Um, and, and Jesus is very clear in this on the, in the Sermon on the Mount the way that he ends, and I I referenced it um, as I was praying, that uh, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Many people would hear his words, probably even say that's intelligent, insightful teaching, but then not do them. Um, Even most pagans will say Jesus was a good teacher but that doesn't mean that they trust him because they're unwilling to actually do anything that he taught 
Uh, and then a little bit later, we're going to get to this in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Jesus says that, that uh, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Ultimately, Jesus is speaking about the Jews who've been blinded. Um, but this is the case of many people. They see the mighty works of God in this man, Jesus, and they perceive that it is a movement of God, but they don't then turn and seek forgiveness and pursue repentance. Any other thoughts, questions, comments on any of that? There's still a lot of people that, you know, until today, trying to destroy Christianity and yeah. It's proven time and time that they cannot. It's 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 a different battle. Yeah, it is true. There are lots of people committed to that. C.S. Lewis talks about how his conversion was connected to this idea that he called himself an atheist, which means you don't believe in God, and yet he hated God. And he realized finally the inconsistency there. If there is no God, then why do I hate him? Yeah, yeah. And yet you see these people who claim that they have no belief in God and yet commit their whole lives to like doing everything they can to shut it down. It's so weird. Okay, let's pick up in verse 13. Uh, it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Um, okay, so God originally called the twelve tribes of Israel to himself where? Yeah, on a mountain at Sinai. Right? So I think Jesus is sort of recapitulating this idea. He goes up on a mountain. He calls to himself the 12 disciples. And so I think this is a recapitulation of the history of, of Israel. So Jesus is here establishing a new Israel, not ethnic in nature, but spiritual. Flip with me to Revelation 21. Someone willing to read nice and loud for us verses 9 through 14. And just pay attention and, and see what you notice here. I can do it. Okay. 9 through 14. Yes. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. 
having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the name of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So what do you notice related to what we were just talking about with Jesus calling his apostles? <clears throat> okay, mountains. The thing that... Twelve, twelve tribe, twelve, the twelve. The, 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 the number two. Yeah, this city as it's described with its walls and its gates and its foundations has the names of the 12 tribes listed and then the names of the 12 apostles listed, right? So again, I'm saying that this is like a recapitulation of Israel, that this is the kingdom of God established with the 12 tribes of Israel and then finding fulfillment now in the 12 apostles. That's a really interesting concept that Jesus comes and does is the faithful Israel, because you see all the imagery like you're pointing out. Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus goes 40 days as a type and shadow of that. Israel's tempted, fails. Jesus is tempted, resists. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, which was written while they're in the desert, and he's quoting all those things to show you guys what you've done this, you know, like um, and yeah. you could just go on and on how Jesus redoes what yeah. Israel failed to do and becomes the perfect land. Absolutely. And I think Matthew's gospel really focuses on that because I think it is predominantly written to like a Jewish audience. And so if you read Matthew's gospel, like the first three chapters in particular, he's really trying to hammer that out. Um, even in the way that he traces the lineage back to like Abraham. Um, and he talks about out of Egypt I called my son, right? Jesus going down to, to Egypt. Um, and then, yeah, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, the temptation, and Jesus passes it. So there's a lot of that stuff. Um, and I think Mark is kind of getting into that, some of that here, right? Like, what is, what is, and I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to paint this picture of like, Israel turning into the church. I'm just trying to say, like, what is the true Israel? It is the people of God. Who are the people of God? Those who have faith in Christ. Um, in the Old Testament, they didn't know the particulars of Christ, but those who were actually Israel were those who had faith in God that he was going to make a way through a Savior, right? So, um, all right. I want to point out here to the... Does anybody else want to chime in on that? I didn't mean to change the subject so quickly. Did, um, I'm not that familiar with a lot of the Old Testament. Did they really focus that much on, on the Savior aspect? I think, I mean, like, it... Yeah, it's cryptic and it's woven there throughout. Like you have Isaiah 53, um, which talks about the suffering servant, uh, the establishment of the throne of David, you know, this, this throne that was supposed to be eternal, and yet within two generations, it's gone. Um, so, yeah, I think they were in expectation of that. And you read the, the Minor Prophets, and there's a lot of expectation there. Um, 
I think the way, and I've probably said this before, but I think if you read the Old Testament and you kind of read it quickly, like an unfolding story, you 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 have Abraham and his descendants that are supposed to be the people of God, and they repeatedly fail. I mean, we're going to look at that even to some degree today in, in Genesis 34. And then... You know, the, the whole story of Israel is just a mess. And by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're sort of like, is there anybody? Does anybody actually love God? Is there anybody who actually can keep this covenant? And then Jesus bursts on the scene, and he does. Um, and the Jews today, are they at all focused on the Savior aspect? Yeah, I think they would say, like, well, Judaism has different... Um, sex, almost like denominations. You know, liberal Judaism is just basically godless and pagan. Um, but there is, there are like messianic Jews that have come out of Judaism because of Christ. And you have like Orthodox Judaism, I think is definitely waiting for a savior. Um, but I'm not familiar with it enough to kind of represent their position on that. Um, I the mean, savior might be that just God comes back and restores his yeah, theology, his yeah. Old glory, yeah, kind of thing. And one of the reasons why I think they missed Jesus, the the Jews in Jesus' day, is because they were looking for a socio political Messiah. They didn't necessarily understand that it would be predominantly spiritual in nature. They were looking for literally a king who would cast off the oppression of the Romans. And that's their savior bodily. Not physically, I mean, not spiritually. Yeah. You know. What do you explain that I'm again? When they were looking for that savior, I don't think they were looking for some eternal being. They were looking for somebody to throw off impression that would die. Yeah. Kind of thing. But as far as like God. It, yeah, they were definitely not looking for God in the flesh. Yeah. Right. Amen. I do want to point out the sovereign choice of Jesus in election here. I mean, hopefully at this point you know my position on. God's sovereignty and election. Um, I think it's littered throughout Scripture in a thousand different ways. But who came to Jesus? Here, specifically, in verse 13. Those who he desired. Right? The ones that he chose. And there's lots of reason to believe that there was quite a crowd, not just of people eager to like touch Jesus and get healed, but people who actually thought, this is the Messiah and I want to follow him. Right? Um and then verse 14, and he did what? Appointed. He appointed. I think many people would have chosen to be in Jesus' inner circle. I think there's probably a large group of people who are following this man Jesus. They think that he's something special. And you know the human tendency to want to kind of be on the in crowd. There's probably many more than 12 that are desirous of this position to be close to Jesus and be part of his inner circle. But Jesus calls to himself those whom he desires. And they respond. They come. And he appoints them to do this work. Uh, and look at the reason for why he calls them to himself in verse 14. Notice the order here. He appoints the twelve whom he also names apostles so that What's first? Send them out to preach. That's second. Oh. 
<laughs> You're right, but first, what happens? That they might be with him. Yes, that they might be with him, right? How can they go and represent him? How can they go and proclaim his message if they have not first been with him? Okay? So I think this connects to a verse that I love from Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Someone want to look that one up for us? Acts 4, 13. So before these men could be sent, they had to be with Jesus. Somebody got it? Read it nice and loud. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to re recognize them as having been with Jesus. Right? So the Pharisees are looking at these untrained, ignorant, backwater, fishermen, you know, cowtown country folk. And what is it that they observe is that even though they're uneducated and untrained in the way of like the lofty Judaism of the day, they had clearly been with Jesus, right? Why are these men so full of power and wisdom? Why is this movement so unstoppable? Well, it's because it connects back to Jesus, okay? So verse 14, Jesus calls them. He appoints them so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Now let's look at that a little bit. Uh, the word apostle is essentially the same as the word preach. They have the same root word. So an apostle is a sent one, a messenger. They come with a message. And what do they do? They apostello. They proclaim the message. Okay, so apostle means messenger or envoy. So there's a way that you could read this. It'll sound a little bit weird, but he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to apostle. Um, yeah, I think this is important because people will say a lot today that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, and I agree with that but that's only partly true. Um, we also hear a lot today about how Christianity isn't a, a doctrine, it's a way of life. And that's also partly true. But Jesus sent his apostles to preach a doctrinal message that would produce a way of life. In other words, you cannot have the way of Jesus apart from the, the doctrinal message of Jesus, okay? Uh, and the message is, Mark opened with this. Do you remember? Repent. Yeah, repent and believe. And that belief is not, again, a mental assent to this thing. It is a trust that produces a particular way of life. Okay. Um, I think in some ways in this world that we live, by world that we live in, I really mean the American culture that we find ourselves in there is this kind of antithesis to the doctrinal proclamation of the gospel message. Um, and I, don't, I think if you try to take that road, you end up with not, something that's not Christianity. Does that make sense? Does anybody have any other comments or questions or thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I sometimes, I sometimes like think about like there is so many um, arguments about you know interpretation of the Bible, but it's just really simple, you know. You just believe and follow Christ and obey Him. Yeah, I I think and, it is simple. Well, one of the beauties of Scripture is that volumes and volumes and volumes of books have been written on it. And I would say there's more still to be written. And yet, it is as simple as repent and believe, right? It's something that a five-year-old child can begin to comprehend. You're a sinner. There's a God. You're accountable to him. He sent his son to redeem you. And that's truly something, I mean, I think that's something that I truly understood as like a five-year-old. Um... And so it's got both of those aspects to it, right? But you don't have to, you don't have to know Greek. You don't have to read all the theology books in order to understand that following Jesus is the best thing that you can do with your life. So <clears throat> I think this is interesting too. He gives them authority, verse fifteen, to cast out demons, which is a display of God's power at work. Uh, and we're going to get to like. I think Mark is setting the stage for uh, the, the scene that is going to come up here shortly. But the message that they proclaim also comes with the power and authority to cast out the natural man. Does that make sense? He's giving them a message that if you receive it, not only will cast out demons, but it will cast out the heart of stone that is rebellious against God, and it will replace it with a heart of flesh that becomes obedient to God. So when that message is heard, received, and believed, it comes with power. Uh, Jesus had many disciples. Is it 1 Corinthians like 15 that talks about where he appeared to 500 of them at one time? I think it is. So there are at least 500 disciples that even after his crucifixion and resurrection were still committed to Jesus. But he only had 12 apostles. This was a unique office belonging to only these 12 men. Judas, I think, gives it up when he betrays Jesus. Acts records that the disciples sort of, by casting lots, replaced Judas with Matthias. I think actually Paul would be the real replacement for Judas. Um, in Galatians 1.1 1, 1, and many other places, Paul calls himself an apostle appointed by Christ. He uses the very same word that Paul or that Mark uses here, that these men were appointed by Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 15.8, he says, like one untimely born, he, Jesus appeared to him. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of debate on that. But, you know, if you think about the passage we read from Revelation 21, what names are written on that foundation? What 12 apostles? I think it's probably Paul and not Matthias, but can't prove that. In response to all of this uh, chaos and craziness and celebrity fanfare, Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. Verse 21, his family heard it. They went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this because one of Jesus' family members is James. 
James is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, we would say half-brother because Jesus had no biological father. Mary was his biological mother. James would have been the son of Joseph and Mary, okay? And this is the James that is not listed here in the apostles because he was not an apostle. James, I think, was not a follower of Jesus as, as text like verses, verse 21 kind of sh show us. Um, but James, the brother of Jesus, wrote the book of James. He ended up being the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We see this in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem council. James uh, factors into that scene quite predominantly. In fact, he's the one that ultimately kind of makes the final statement there. And again, he shows up in Acts chapter 21, verse 18, and it specifically says that he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, uh, Paul records that Jesus appeared specifically to James. And when he says that, he's not referring to James the Apostle because he already talked about the appearance to the Apostles. He's saying that Jesus appeared to James, his brother. Um, and, and we also know this because in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, James the Apostle, who's listed here by Mark, is killed by Herod. So he dies very early on. So when that name James refers to the to the Jerusalem church, it's definitely not referring to James the Apostle, okay? Um, just a couple other things here. So according to uh, Hegesippus, as quoted by Eusebius, so these are some early church historians, James was devoted to the law. James, this is a quote, James the brother of the Lord, who as there were many of this name, was surnamed the Just, so he was called James the Just, from the days of our Lord until now, received the government of the church with the apostles. This apostle was consecrated from his mother's womb. I'm not sure where that comes from because that's not recorded in the text. Um, he drank neither wine nor fermented liquors and abstained from animal food. So that would be a, a Nazarite vow. Further, Hegesippus relates how James would frequently pray in the temple for his people on his knees so that his knees became as hard as camels. Um, he was called the just or oblius, meaning bulwark of the people. Now, this is extra biblical, so you know we'd have to look first at the text to see whether this is affirmed there, but it's kind of interesting to know some of the like church tradition there. The martyrdom of James was, was described by Hegesippus as well as Josephus. According to Hegesippus, James, um, because James was preaching that Jesus was the Christ in Jerusalem, in the temple at Passover, he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. So this is how he was kind of martyred. And he didn't immediately die after being cast down from the temple. Instead, after being cast down, he manages to kneel and continue to pray. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Afterwards, then he was stoned and beaten with a club and then buried near the temple. This is James, the brother. Yes. And, uh, and I'm mentioning this because of verse 21 that talks about his family. Um, and I'll circle back to that in a second. Uh, so according to Josephus, uh, who's another church historian, uh, Ananus, the high priest in AD 62, convened the Sanhedrin and sentenced James and many others to be stoned because of their violations of the law. So James was martyred in AD 68 
or potentially AD 62. So the accounts of uh, Hegesippus and Josephus uh, are different on that, but the point is James was martyred very early on in the history of the church in Jerusalem. Okay, He was beloved by the people because he cared deeply about, the, the church in Jerusalem was mostly kind of poor and marginalized, and uh, James was ministering to those people, and he also, up until the, his martyrdom, sort of stood in a bridge between the uh, Jewish Pharisees and the Christian, the newly minted Christian movement. Okay, here's the re I mean, some of that's just kind of fun because it's church history, church tradition. But the point I really want to make here with verse 21 is I think Jesus' family, for the most part, essentially doubted Jesus during his ministry, right? What do they say here? He's out of his mind. This dude is crazy. And when your own family who initially doubted you and then ends up being fully devoted to you uh, claims that you are the Messiah and the incarnate Son of God, that's a pretty powerful apologetic. Like if I were to stand here this morning and be like, I think I'm God incarnate. You could call my little brother and he'd be like, no, no, let me tell you like a dozen stories growing up where my brother was a jerk and there's no way he's just like off his rocker. He's definitely not who he's claiming to be, right? James, who grew up with Jesus, ends up believing that Jesus is everything that he said he was. Would you put Mary in this category? And is it possible to read this as they set up to a stream, he's out of his mind because he's about to be killed because of the crowd and not because he's coming to be God? Yeah, that's possible. Um, yeah, that's certainly a possible reading. I don't know that they're necessarily saying he's out of his mind. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that he's necessarily like out of his mind because he is claiming to be the son of God, but he is the head of this movement that is, like this is Jesus. Like he grew up in Nazareth, right? Like he's my brother. Like what, what, who does he think he is kind of like doing this thing? Would Mary be included in this? This text is not super clear, but, but we are going to get a little bit further in Mark where she is part of the group that's like, come on, come home. And probably that is motivated by just concern that, that he's kind of at the forefront of this thing that's getting a lot of attention. It's hard to believe that she would not trust that. Yes. Yeah. She has some kind of special knowledge yeah. anyway. I mean, intimate knowledge. Yes, and I'm sorry. I'm When I'm talking about like James and his apologetic, I'm not including Mary in that. I mean, she had a divine revelation from God that he was the son of God. Um, if the brothers are having a hard time believing that. Yes, yes. And I think that, well, I can't. I guess I can't really say much more than that because we don't have, we don't, I, I would be moving into speculation. Leonard, what were you going to say? Yeah. Uh, if John chapter 7, we're just starting in verse 4, it says, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. Then Thank Jesus you. said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Yeah, so it specifically lays out the brothers nice. in the book of John. Super helpful. Thank um, you. And, and Grady, when you read this, it says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. 
that the, his family was saying he's out of his mind or the crowd was saying he's out of his mind? Yeah, that's another really good question. I didn't consider looking at that. Um, the both, but it sounds like they were trying to protect him. Yeah, and they, they certainly were, but also it was kind of like, I, I think the implication is here, like, Jesus, come on, get like come down off your high horse a little bit. Like, again, we know you. We grew up with you, and this movement that you're starting is, um, you know, it's kind of getting out of control. But uh, the Greek may indicate what the they pronoun there refers to. Greek is a little bit different in, than English in that like word endings help you understand associations. But I didn't look into that because it didn't stand out to me. But I think that it is his family who's saying he's out of his mind. And I think part of the reason is because I think James is setting up, or I'm sorry, Mark is setting us up for what's going to come in verses 31 to 35. Okay. We, we probably won't get there today. We won't get there today. Um... Yeah. So on multiple on multiple occasions, Mark mentions that uh, Jesus and his followers, Jesus and his apostles or disciples, were so busy and harangued by the crowds that they didn't have time to eat. So that's um, verse twenty. He went home. The crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. That's also recorded a little bit later in chapter six, verse thirty-one. So this was a busy, intense season of ministry for Jesus which kind of helps us understand why he was looking for opportunities to sneak away and pray early in the morning and get off kind of by himself. Let's try and cover the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit part here, picking up in verse 22. Uh, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. Uh, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, I want to just point out like a structural note, and I sort of mentioned this already, but verse 21 ends with a reference to Jesus' family. And then verse 31, which we won't get to today, picks up on that subject matter. Mark uses this literary device a couple of times. It, it happens again in chapter 5, again in chapter 6, again in chapter 11, 14. So he does this thing where he introduces an idea and then he slots in a different scene and then he picks up on that idea again later. I'm not really sure what that literary device is, but it's just kind of interesting that Mark chooses to do that. I, I would imagine that the reason he does it like this here is because the claim from his family kind of is similar to the claim from the Jewish leaders in that it is a statement of doubt but one is blasphemous and the other is not okay so his family says he's out of his mind and the scribes who come down say 
he's possessed by Beelzebul. Okay, so one of these is a, a form of doubt that I think can be cured. The other one is a form of doubt that is beyond cure, is what Jesus seems to say here. Can I just keep throwing forth that other one? Because I think the I love it. When I read this, the family one is saying, he's out of his mind. Look, he's about to get killed and he's just standing there. He's going to teach these people. They're pressing up against him. we got to save him. <laughs> but so why do you think he's about to get killed? Where does the text give you that impression? The crowds are, they were not even able to eat. The crowds were gathered against. They were not even able to eat. It's pointing out, like, this is such a, a crowd. You can barely even move and you're breathing. When you see that kind of thing, it's like... Um, you feel like when you're in a crowd and you're pressed and yeah. up against you, you feel. And I think even before he has the boats ready, because he's going to get pushed into the sea. And he, I mean, that's how I, I read that. Does that, uh, does that diminish what I'm saying about the two statements correlating or no? No, I'm just, I'm just not reading it. That the family is saying has doubt. That, I mean, I know that they do. John tells us the brothers do. And they try to get him to go through this thing. It's just in here, it's possible that they don't have doubt. They're just trying to save from the crowd. It's not really a faith thing. But I don't know. So why not? Because his mother's listed here as coming to get him. And she doesn't doubt it. At least the scripture never Yeah, me. that's she true. Right. And so she's willing, she's one of the ones coming to get him away. And so that just kind of, that's why I, I said, I'm not trying to create it. No, no. That, I, I enjoy the discussion always. Um, I think my, my rebuttal to that would be, why does Mark then put verses 22 through 30 in here instead of front load 31 to 35? Does that make sense? It, yeah, but it's, it's simple for me. is like the, the crowd's coming. His, parent, his family's getting worried about him. Here's what the crowd's saying to him, and here's what Jesus is doing in the midst of that crowd. And then it's, just, it's, just, it's a natural progression. I don't see the, the takeaway, reintroduce a thing. I think... But wouldn't it make much more sense to go just from verse 21 to 31? No, because then you miss what Jesus was saying in the crowd to the people. It's one continuous thought. He's in the crowd. People are gathering up against him. While he's in there pressing, his parents, his family's coming to try to save him. But while they're coming, he's teaching this this thing about Satan and Beelzebub. While, you know, and they're coming. It's all one scene. Okay, well then one other question would be, wouldn't it make more sense then to put what he says, so verses 22 through 30, in front of verse 21? Like, there's a weird there's a weird division between verse 21 and verse 31 that I, I think is intentional in Mark organized, structuring this, that could have been more simply structured if he wasn't trying to create this impression. Wasn't, wasn't he trying to show that the crowd was not all in favor of Jesus and some of them were for him and some of them were against him and it was getting kind of dangerous? Yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah. It, it says they set out to restrain him. So they're on their way. While they're on their way, or while they're trying to get to him, he's, he's, he's saying all these things. In which, which verse? Verse Is that 21? In 21, yeah. Okay. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him. While they're setting out and going to get to restrain him, He's saying all this stuff. His family finally gets the message, gets to him that his parents, his mom and brothers are trying to talk to him. I mean, that's how, that's how I see it. But I, and I don't know, again, where we're gonna. I mean, I guess the difference is that we're saying it's doubt that they're doubting him, and I'm just saying they're trying to save him. 
from the crowds and like because it's completely trampled. But I don't you know because that's a big that's a kind of a big difference, right? I mean, yeah, and, yeah. Unless you kind of look at it as the point of just like that would say that he didn't have that Jesus didn't have the means to take care of himself, which we would assuredly think that the Son of God had the means to take care of himself, and we could trust him in a crowd of mere mortals. You know what I'm saying? Like, ooh, so like I know he's saying he's the Son of God, and if he was, he could definitely take care of himself in this crowd, but perhaps he's not. So we better be there so that we can save him because he doesn't have the ability to save himself. I guess that's what when it would become significant, and that would be the doubt, right? And you absolutely could be right. Um, I think I'm sort of operating from this presupposition, like as a person who like teaches and, and also writes to communicate things. I mean, when I preach, I write first and then I preach it. I'm always thinking very carefully about how this connects to this and how saying this is gonna help illuminate this, right? So I, I guess I'm operating from the presupposition that Mark is not merely giving us just like an account. He has taken these things and intentionally placed them for instructive purposes. Um, maybe that's reading too much into it, but I, I'm going to assert that in this case, he is trying to create a, a juxtaposition of these two kinds of statements. One being like, this dude's crazy. The other one being like, this dude is demon possessed. Um, so roll with me on that for the sake of my, my argument here. And I could be wrong, and I'm totally open to that. Um, well, he's painting a picture of the situation that's going down. Yeah, of course. And, and that's important, too. I mean, he's giving those details to help us understand the intensity of this moment. Um, and certainly if the crowd thought that Jesus was possessed by a demon, they would probably be very motivated to end that possession through something like stoning or violence, right? Um, on, a, on a quick side note, the Bible says quite often that they came down from Jerusalem. This is just something that, that stands out to me. We tend to think about north as up and south as down, but they've come north and the Bible says they've come down. And the reason is because Jerusalem is, is at a higher elevation. So another reason for me to mention this is that if you read the Psalms, you'll come across Psalms that say a song of ascent. That was a Psalm that they would sing as they were making the ascent up to the temple in Jerusalem. Um, so when it says they came down, it's because Jerusalem has this higher elevation. Uh, okay, so they say he is, they accuse him of deriving his power from the devil. So this, uh, acknowledges that the scribes and the Pharisees could not deny that Jesus was operating with some supernatural power. But rather than attribute it to God, they attribute it to Satan. And I think the reason why this is so intensely evil, I mean, that's really kind of the terms that Jesus puts it in, like this particular sin is unforgivable, is because it's obvious. Um, I remember taking, and I'm, I'm going to mention this, today in my sermon, I remember taking a um, philosophical theology course, and one of the statements that was made in there is that some things are apparent. We live in an age of skepticism and doubt, but some things are just apparent, mm -hmm. right? And, and people know this, like uh, a grown man should not sexually abuse a young child. Why? Well, it's apparent, right? Like that's obvious. 
And I think this is one of those scenes. Um, and Jesus is going to make a clear argument for why what he is doing is not of the devil. But this should be obvious, guys. This should be very clear. So let's talk for just a second about Beelzebul. Which, does everybody's translation use that word, Beelzebul? Rick, yours does? Is anybody reading not ESV? Okay. The spelling Beelzebul comes into English translations from the Latin Vulgate. Uh, which derived it from the Hebrew Baalzebub, meaning Lord of the Flies. So that's kind of literally what that means. It's the name of an ancient Canaanite deity. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. The spelling Beelzebul um, is also used in some Greek manuscripts, but it reflects this uh, idea of this is the Lord of the dwelling place. That That is... These are demons who sat in pagan temples. Okay? So that's kind of where that word comes from. We've sort of modernized it to just be like a, a, a nickname for Satan, Beelzebub. But technically it was referring to demons in pagan temples. Um, is that the same as the, the Baal? The, yeah, the Baal. The, right. The, it comes from that same Baal. Baal. Yeah, which act, that them. word actually just means in Hebrew, master or Lord. So it, I mean, it becomes the formal name of demons or even, you know, a Canaanite deity that they were bowing down to in opposition to Yahweh, but it just means master. So Jesus chooses to refute the um, Pharisees here with parables. Rather than simply deny the charge, he exposes its absurdity, right? He could have simply said, guys, that's not true. You're dumb. But instead, he goes through this sort of philosophical explanation of why this is absurd. He points out the destructive power of division. Now, Satan is a divider. He has been a divider from the beginning. Because what is his very first act when he pops on the scene? It's to divide man from God. And in doing that, he also divides man from man, Adam from Eve. And he divides man from creation, right? So Satan is a divider, but he does not divide himself. Jesus points out that in the day in which Satan does divide himself, it's an indication that his kingdom is falling. Revelation chapter 17, if you want to go home and read that, it does appear that in the end, Satan divides himself. And what you have there is the beast devouring the prostitute. The prostitute first comes riding on the beast, and then the beast devours the prostitute. So the prostitute, I think, being Babylon, the kingdoms of men, and uh, they're essentially in league with Satan and until... It's no longer profitable for that. And he's at the end of his kind of rope, and so he devours the prostitute. So there's some sort of prophetic statement, I think, here in the words of Jesus. Um, yeah, so, you know, anybody knows that if you're going to uh, be victorious, you can't have a, a movement that is divided internally. So that's how Jesus refutes their claim. Um I think maybe we should stop there only for the sake of time. We'll, we'll, we'll explore more the parable of 27 about the strong man 
and plundering goods next week. Anybody want any final last word, question, comment? Okay, well then, let me pray. God, we thank you for the work and the ministry of Jesus and how he has brought about the inauguration of a kingdom that is truly the kingdom of God where hearts are submitted to you. And um, I pray that we in faith and trust would heed this message and would live in accordance with it. Um, and we thank you that Jesus came in your power and your authority and that at the end of all things, he will rule and reign. And uh, I pray that you would give us endurance to run this race until that day comes. Amen.